The Boldly Now Show, burning desire, big ideas, bold action. I'm Michael Sean Conaway with Rachel Morrison at Boldly Now. We have the great pleasure and honor right now of introducing you to Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a philosopher, public speaker, and author, and most recently the author of The Coronation, a long essay on these COVID-19 times that we're living through. Uh, an essay that's gotten a lot of viral attention, a lot of people uh, thinking about this situation differently. Uh, welcome to the show, Charles. Yeah, Michael, I'm happy to be here. And Rachel's here in the conversation with us as well. Hey guys, good to be here. Um, Charles, what's, what's up for you right now? It's been everything for me. Uh, I feel like everything that's happening in the world and every possibility that's offering itself is happening to me too and offering itself to me. So I have moments or more than moments, but you know, hours and days sometimes of despondency over what's going on in the world. Not so much, oh my God, this virus is gonna come get me, but more of what it's bringing out of the collective unconscious in terms of a response by society, the social, the political dimensions of this. It's really um, been getting to me. And also on another level, I realize that there's part of me that's always wanted this. This meaning uh, a, a liberation from normal. A lot of people can resonate with this. I think this, this, years or decades of of looking forward with with relish and fear at the same time to everything falling apart whether that is expressed as peak oil or y2k or 2012 or whatever there's like this this um desire to be free of the normality and the seeming inevitability of the course that that society's been on like this feeling that this wasn't really working for me. It was supposed to be different. It's supposed to be better. There's not supposed to be millions of children starving. There's not supposed to be this political decay, this ecological decay. And, and also just on the personal level that I'm supposed to feel more alive than I do in the life that has been prescribed for me. So there's this welcome as well to the breakdown in normal, which doesn't depend on like, yeah, it's not that I'm not aware of the suffering that is going on in the world through this, but it's not like things were good before either. So for me, it's been a lot of everything as I've tried to make sense of this. And I've, I've been obsessively trying to make intellectual sense of it, but also to make emotional sense of it. Um, yeah, you, the relish thing, I, I totally get. I mean, I, 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 there was a moment, you know, after lockdown that my daughter and I were in the kitchen and we were laughing about how great it was that we didn't have to go back to normal the next day. Um, and then that, that you get, you get that. And then you get the next day of like, Oh, wow, this is, this is really difficult. This is really challenging. We've, we've lost a lot. Um, and for, for you and your work and the things that, that, uh, that are important to you right now, has this been a good time for you? Hmm. Well, my work has received a lot of attention um, because of the coronation, because of that essay I wrote. Uh, I guess that's a good thing. 
uh, I guess it's better than the opposite. Um, but I've also been spending a lot of time online, which is not the direction I really want to be moving. I've been on Zoom a lot, online summits, online festivals. Here we are. You know, I, I get it. Like we're we're desperate to reach out to each other. We're desperate to to enact our sociability. And under lockdown, there's not a lot of ways to do it. Yes. And at the same time, I'm craving the real thing. I'm not satisfied with with virtual communication. And a lot is, I don't want, I'm not like dissing virtual communication. I mean, a lot is possible through it, but a lot is not possible virtually. And this is being shown to us, this, as we are restricted to almost only virtual communication, at least in me, and I think in a lot of people, it's bringing into stark contrast the, what we have lost and and it's asking us, do we want to keep going down this path? Because the move to virtual communication is nothing new. This has been like more and more things have been going online, education, um, you know, social, like sociality. Um, like more and more of our lives have moved onto the computer, onto the screen. And now we're being shown what this looks like when it's totalized. And, and it's like, do we really want that? And coming out of COVID, and that's a whole conversation, like what does that actually mean? And are we gonna come out of it as a matter of course when the authorities say, okay, it's over now, you're free again, or are we gonna have to claim that? Like this thing about when it's over, as if that's gonna happen to us? Like what about, where's our agency here? I don't think it's going to happen to us or for us. I think this is part of what we need to claim. So it's not like necessarily to say what kind of world do we want to live in post coronavirus? Uh, it is what do we want to start creating right now? And what do we value and what new values are emerging that may not have been so starkly obvious when normal had its grip upon our minds, but now, have become like undeniable this this desire to to interact in person to be physical to engage senses like like touch like what about the devaluing of touch and the devaluing of the body that is in, encouraged through virtual communication where where it's only the things that can be converted into data that we still have available to us and I, I know this sounds like really philosophical and stuff, but I'm just saying to people, like, please honor your discontent because that is what will drive our choices in the future to reclaim our lives. If we don't do that, then we know the destination. We're seeing it in all of the totalitarian impulses that the authorities are enacting right now. The, the lockdowns, the quarantines, the distancing, the control, the control of information, the tracking, the surveillance. Uh, this is the new normal if we don't do anything about it. I totally get that. And, um, you know, when you speak of all of the reasons why other people should be 
um, why you should be believing other people about their, sub, their prescriptions for your life. I'm curious for you, Charles, is there something that in your life you are making a stance and taking the right of initiation into allowing yourself the full freedom of not subscribing to a reality that people have prescribed for you. And what is that? Like, where is your new normal leading you to? Yeah. One thing that, I, that I've been going through is just the further release of this idea that I'm supposed to change the world. Um, that I'm supposed to do something meaningful even that I'm, I'm just rapidly losing whatever remained of my ambition. I don't care how big my audience is. Um, I, it's not, and it's not because I had some ethical or moral awakening. It's just, I kind of got sick of it. And so there's all these shoulds, like here's how you're supposed to do how to, how to play the role that I'm in right now. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to the farm. My brother has a farm and I'm going to spend all day doing physical labor. I've been doing that at home even. Like I've planted a garden. Um, the, the times that I have the greatest joy are when I'm like building something, planting seeds, you know, putting up a fence, um, thinking about a cold frame I might make. Like, like really simple stuff. And, and my upbringing doesn't even allow me to do that. And the social perceptions of what, you know, an author or a thought leader is supposed to do. Like it doesn't really have room, have room for that. And I've been going through a lot of um, a lot of uh, deep inquiry about my motivations. Uh, working with a healer who's like unearthing these deep programs in me. Like she was like, you confuse love and approval. You think that you have to earn the right to exist. You think that you have to earn God's love. Uh, you think that you're lazy. Like she's like saying these things and, and like the identifying these programs that I have. So yeah, if it weren't for this lockdown, I might not really have the chance to do this kind of work because I'd be traveling and stuff. And I'm so happy not to travel, to go through the humiliation ordeal of airport security even and sitting in those planes, you know, and just, just, uh, it's this alternate reality that it, this is the longest I've gone without going on an airplane for like 10 years. And I don't know. Now I'm, I'm veering off the question you asked, but um, I have like yeah. a sheet of, of these programs. Maybe, and maybe just to make this relevant to everybody listening, um, what, what programmed behaviors and programmed ways of thinking are being exposed now? Mm -hmm. Like what, what have you taken for granted as just who you are or how you have to live? that you're like, oh, actually that was just 
a way that I was coping with my circumstances and my circumstances have changed and, and I don't need to be like that anymore. This is incredible what we're going through. This has not happened for most people in like Western, Western societies. Nothing like this has happened for 70 or 80 years. It's really profound. This, this um, dissolving. Yeah. What do you see that's on the other side of the dissolving? Like what's the emerging? Well, the emerging is what I was saying before. The emerging is, is choice. It's to consciously choose what we had been programmed to do automatically or what we had been told to do um, or what we thought was the only choice. And now we're realizing that it's not the only choice and, and thereby we can reclaim some sovereignty over our lives. So what is that choice going to be for society? I can't say because it's a choice. You know, if I could say, oh, it's going to be this, then it wouldn't be a choice, would it? If that, then it would be a prediction and inevitability. But I think that we can all influence the choice that we will collectively make, what kind of world we want to live in, by even naming what the choice is and by describing the possibilities that we see and by committing to those possibilities and by recognizing our purpose here as being in service to what's possible, to the most beautiful possibility you can imagine. And the same is true for our lives. And does that guarantee that you will achieve it? No. But the commitment to it, the service to it, makes life beautiful, whether or not you achieve it. And now I'm starting to sound like a self-help book, but you know, some cliches are, are true. Yeah. Charles, tell, tell us, what are some of the qualities of that beautiful life? I mean, you know, sometimes we talk about a thriving life or, uh, you know, people being fulfilled. You know, like, what are, some of the, what are some of the base level qualities and what are some of the aspirational qualities of that? I would name the qualities as connection, intimacy, love, authenticity, truth. Um, it's to, to, but really it's about connection. It's to be intimately woven into a community, into a place, um, into the, the, not just the community of people, but of all beings mm. around us, which is ironic given that our response as a society to COVID-19 has been the opposite of that. It's been separation from each other and separation from all beings, like washing your hands all the time, being running around terrified of germs and not replenishing your microbiome and your immune system with the dirt and the germs and the interactions that, that we actually need to be healthy and with the social interactions that we need to be socially healthy. You know what the biggest predictor of chronic disease is? It's not smoking. That's not the biggest risk factor. It's not drinking. It's loneliness. It's isolation. So, yeah. So, so, we're, so again, like we're being shown what that really looks like when taken to an extreme. And therefore, we're being asked, do we, do we want that? Do we accept that as 
the inevitable trend of modern life to be more and more separate and more and more afraid? Or shall we exercise our sovereign will and claim togetherness, claim connection, claim relationship, and repudiate everything that we get in the way of that, or at least question? Wow, that's great. Um, and if I'm a, an individual, you know, you just said like, you know, being a contributor to the circle of life and those notions like, you know, like, so I'm a, I'm an individual right now. I'm watching this show and, um, you know, I've got, I got kids to deal with. I'm there on doing homeschool on the computer. I've, I'm trying to figure out my work and my life and my job and every, just everything, everywhere I look, everything seems like chaos. And like, where do I even begin to start this conversation called, you know, a contribution to the circle of life? I mean, what, what, what do you say to people to like, what can we do? There's no formula, like no universal formula. Like this is the most important thing that you can do to contribute to life right now. Uh, the, the intelligence that deploys us in that task is far beyond our own, but it communicates with us through the organ of the heart mm. by making us care about, the, the, about precisely the things that we need to be doing the most. So that maybe that could be just your children, you know, or some person in your life or the community or uh, your garden, uh, or it could be something on a political level like what each person is cut out to do and created to do uh, is, is unique. Uh, so I think it comes down to a trust in the heart and the body to give us information that the mind can't give us, especially now when there are so many conflicting narratives that we just don't know what to think. I'm saying that's good. If you don't know what to think, that's good because at least you have some immunity to being controlled by other people's beliefs. And someday you will know what to think. And then someday you realize that what you thought was wrong and you'll grow into even a bigger thing. But anyway, in, in this time of, of not being able to be guided by our mental understanding of what's happening and how the world is working, we can source another level of guidance that you know, comes from our, from our, our sense of care, from what we love. Um, I, I, something that's come in a couple of different spots is, you know, talking about um, economic incentives, you know, incentives or kind of underlying values. Um, like, like there's other projects we could be doing that are outside of a value uh, incentive. And it seems like one of those moments of like being humiliated is it's like, oh, we really worked on what we thought was important, you know, becoming more and more efficient and extracting more and more wealth out of more and more efficient processes. And wow, it takes one little virus and, you know, in a couple of months to bring all of that, you know, finely wrought economic efficiency to a, like a tragic end. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's showing us our vulnerability because you know what? If a virus of approximately this level of danger appeared 40 years ago or 50 years ago, we would have barely even noticed it. How do I know that? Because a virus of this proximate level of danger did appear 50 years ago and almost nobody even remembers it. I asked my mom, do you remember the Hong Kong flu of 1968? She didn't remember it. Something like 4 million people died 
of the Hong Kong flu. That's what, like 15 times the number that have died of COVID so far. And the population was half what it was now, what it is now. But nobody really made any changes at all like in their, in their lives. Um, so, so the fact that we are so fragile, so susceptible to this virus, when the actual numbers are not that scary, and, and this has been coming out uh, recently, the, all the antibody studies that are, that are implying, they seem to show that, that you know, 10 times or 20 times or 50 times more people have been infected than we knew, which means that the death rate is 10 or 20 or 50 times lower than we knew. Like this evidence is starting to pop out all over the place, which is actually humiliating for those who have been uh, frightening us into accepting lockdowns and quarantines. Anyway, what, what I'm saying is that our, our, it's our response to it that is different than it would have been 20 or 50 years ago. And it shows us how fragile we are. Because if we were robust in our story and in our confidence, we wouldn't be so easily frightened. This is all about fear. It's about the elevation of survival as to, to become the highest value, to, to live as long as possible, no matter how miserably. But you know, if, if you had to choose, really, when push comes to shove, would you rather have your life prolonged by a month on a, a respirator, a ventilator, breathing you all alone in an ICU, saying goodbye to your friends on FaceTime and your loved ones? Or would you rather die a month earlier, but die at home, surrounded by your loved ones? A lot of people are in this situation right now. I was uh, corresponding with a doctor from a prestigious medical school. And he's like talking about these patients that are these old people, especially that are totally isolated. Even before COVID, they were pretty isolated, but at least they'd have, you know, their son-in-law coming and visiting or whatever. And now like they're so totally alone. It's like they're in solitary confinement. No one's allowed to visit or no one's, you know, everyone's afraid to visit for their own sake. I don't want to risk infecting you. So some of them, he's like, he says, this is happening a lot. They're refusing food. They don't even have the will to eat anymore because they are so lonely, so depressed. They start to get depressed. Like this is, it's just an example of, of what we sacrificed when we uphold prolonging life as our highest value, which is a version of control. So yeah. I can't remember how I got onto that topic, but um, anyway, that, that, that story really struck me. Yeah, with this extreme amount of loneliness and isolation, um, I don't know about you, but I'm also finding ways to lean into like what my deepest heart's desires are. It's like almost as if I'm even more connected to the things of the world that I love and care about so much. And um, I'm curious when we look at what is possible in this new 
reality that we are growing into together as a civilization, what are some, some trim tabs that we can look and point towards as almost like a North Star that we would want to um, bring more of into our world, to bring more um, awareness around how we choose to value those things that might give us a, a chance of creating actually something new. Yeah. So turning away from the value of preservation, value of just surviving. A lot of the fear is really what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my money? How do I preserve? I mean, in the more elite circles, it's how do I preserve my wealth? I was on a call earlier today with somebody who hobnobs with billionaires, you know, and they were like, how do we preserve our wealth in these times? And I was like, even if you could, is that what you want to do? To make sure you're okay as when everybody else isn't. That's the mentality of, of hoarding. And it's not actually what anybody wants. And so to maybe kind of answer your question, like what, like what, these, the, what are the trim tabs of the new values that, that become available when we release the value of control, safety, survival, us versus them? Like what are the new values? I mean, one of these is the value of, of generosity, of gratitude, of sharing. Like just to recognize I am not here to survive life. I am not here to make sure that I make it to the end. That's incoherent. Like everyone's gonna die, you know? News flash, like you're gonna die. So how do you wanna live? Knowing that no matter how strenuously you try to preserve your separate self, it's not gonna work. So how do you wanna live? What is meaningful when you know that you're gonna die? This is what COVID is supposed to be telling us. It's, it's basically one of the, one way to look at the initiation is it's saying, you're gonna die. Let's, let me make it obvious to you, you're gonna die. What are you willing to sacrifice before, you're, before you acknowledge that? Because when you acknowledge that, it changes everything. And if you're a billionaire, you know, you're not going to devote your resource to building a bunker and stocking it with 10 years of food and some gold bars and maybe some guns, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's no kind of life in a, in a wasteland. So maybe then when you realize that you'll value community, you'd be like, yeah, I want to take my resource and, and enhance the lives of everybody around me. Maybe you'll start a festival. You'll find some way to, to use your, and this is not just money, okay? Any gift that we are born with or have acquired in our lives can be used as a gift, passed on as a gift, used as a source to give forward. And so the question, the operating question then is, what is mine to do? What is mine to create? What is the gift that, I, that I'm called to give? And why would I just give? Because I'm so grateful. 
uh, for everything that I've received. And that's another teaching of coronavirus. It's the teaching of gratitude. Like, it's showing the preciousness of maybe things we took for granted. Like I'm having deep bonding with my seven-year-old that wasn't so available to me when I was traveling a lot. You know, we were affable buddies, but now like we're, we're, we're playing every day. And this is not something I earned. You know, when you, I mean, you have children, you know what I'm talking about. Like they are a gift that you, that a million thank yous wouldn't even touch how precious this gift is. And the gift of life and the gift of, maybe when people are allowed outside, we're allowed to, to touch each other again, they'll be grateful for that too. So this knowledge, this awareness of, of having received so much, even life itself is a gift. Our breath is a gift, the sun is a gift. We didn't earn them, right? So they're a gift. Like that knowledge is called gratitude. And it is the driving engine of generosity. And it's why we're here. Like why else would we have been given so much if it were not to make us into powerful givers ourselves? Now, I can't say that COVID-19 is going to force people to get that. But it is a possibility that any, any breakdown in, in the distractions um, can, can give us, and any hardship, actually. Like, hardship is the mother of gratitude as well. So you mentioned your children, um, and you mentioned, you know, gratitude and what the gifts you've received. You know, talk to me a little bit about the, the kind of ancestor you'd like to be to your descendants. Hmm. It's really, it's the most important thing is that my children grow up knowing to their bones that they're loved. If, if you accomplish nothing else in your life but that, then your life is well lived and you are contributing to a better future to the extent that you can do that, to the extent that, that anybody can overcome the trauma that they may carry and pass on a little less of it to the next generation, that's really all that we need. Everything else is icing on the cake. So I would like to be an ancestor that has passed on less trauma than he received. And I would like my children to, to, to know, like without question, that they're loved for exactly who they are, not for their accomplishments. That's one of those programs that I've been uprooting, that my worth depends on my accomplishments, not on my being. And there's this fear that if I really trust that, then I won't accomplish anything. So I really won't be worth anything. I'll be a, a, a parasite on humanity. Like there's this, this deep program there. Uh, I would like to, and that's the program that has disciplined us to comply with the demands of the world destroying machine. So I would like to um, pass on different programs to my children, such as you are sacred and worthy 
for who you are fundamentally and who you are is a giver and a contributor and an artist in the world. That's another way to put it. We are givers, we are artists. We want to make the world more beautiful and more alive than we found it. Then we feel satisfied. Then we feel, yeah, I, was, I did what I was here to do. So that'd be the other thing I would like to pass on to my descendants that I contributed to this vast collective art project of making the world more beautiful and more alive. Well, I can imagine passing that gift a few hundred generations into the future to see what might happen if we live inside of that gift. So thank you for uh, that really beautiful offering. Uh, thank you for the wonderful hour of time we've spent with you. And um, yeah, just uh, your contributions of thought, contributions of spirit. Um, you know, the, the, we are all put here with gifts and one of your gifts is, is, you know, being able to see into uh, the kind of the myth of the, of the story that's going on out there and, and help us to kind of illuminate, you know, a new way to, to look at things or a new way to, to see things. And I like how you do it with great humility. Um, but we were very honored to have you here with us uh, for this festival. And uh, yeah, super appreciative of your time and, and, and all that you have to offer us. Yeah, um, I uh, really uh, enjoyed, enjoyed it. And, and um, yeah, thank you for being so gracious uh, and uh, letting me like, you know, talk for so long. Um, Great. Anything incomplete for you, Rachel? I feel good about this one. Thank you so much for being with us, Charles, and for the courage you have to be as transparent as you are to the world. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Generating a future for a thriving humanity.